0: That matter podcast. I'm your host John Harris, and it is the news roundup today. We have a number of stories to get to, and I don't think we're going to get to all of them. There's just far too many. It may take two or three days to just talk about all the things that I'd like to talk about. And uh, oh my goodness, there's so much going on. Student loan forgiveness. Oh my goodness, right? <laughs> that's uh, apparently that's what Christians believe. That's uh, our doctrine. That's what we think Jesus did was forgive our debts, so we should forgive student loans. I kid you not. That logic is floating around out there on the internet. So uh, that's one of the big national stories that's going on right now. But there's just so many other things, and uh, from from local church matters and local political fights. In fact, I have a message sitting in my inbox right now from someone in a local community where the church—it's not Planned Parenthood—the church apparently is preventing some pro-life, uh, some some pro-life. Things from happening in their particular community and I'm just in supposedly an evangelical church and so there's there's all kinds of stories from the the large to the to the small that we uh, I, I think should talk about and I always put it through the grid of what would be helpful for you to hear uh, this show has been always more of a, a supplement it, it's not a multivitamin I expect that you're getting your you're nurturing in the word of God you um, other places generally. Not that you can't get that here necessarily, but uh, I'm not preaching at you. I'm not giving you exegetical uh, commentary on scripture most of the time. This is a show that I'm giving you a lot of news. I'm giving you a lot of, um, hopefully, useful information about ministries and individuals. And uh, we can be, you know, kind of, uh, some some call it discerning, some call it critical. I just call it wise. We can be wise about uh, the uh, voices and influences that are out there and that's really the the goal of this show it has been for quite some time is to try to bring to you information that will help you in navigating the evangelical landscape out there and there's so many pitfalls there's so many landmines and um, you know I just praise God that he is the one that directs history it's not me and sometimes I worry about uh, all the different voices out that out there that are lying that are saying things that just are not helpful that are um, misdirecting people, that are putting people into compromising situations. I mean, it covers the evangelical, quote-unquote, landscape, whatever evangelical means now. And I just have to remember that God's ultimately in control. We've gone through stages of history that are much worse than this one, in some ways. I was reading this morning in First Samuel, and David's fleeing for his life, and just, can you imagine living like David lived, and thinking the good guys that are controlling Israel, the Israeli elites— Right, they're they're all bad. They're they're uh, following the direction of Saul, who's arrogant. He's coming after me. He's a murderer, uh, or at least that's what he's attempting to do. And 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 so uh, you know we're living in Philistia for some time, but you know we're not really with them either. They don't accept us, and it's just uh, man, I just put myself in his predicament and think, man, I'm blessed. And yet David was a man after God's own heart, who was blessed in his own right, and um, was privileged to be part of the line of the Messiah. So. There's, you open your Bible, you open uh, just even history itself, and you look at uh, what the church has gone through in the past, and we do live in some unique times. I'm not going to lie about that. <laughs> we am not going to say it's, it's always been this way with the global communication capabilities and the technological advances that have made totalitarianism more possible, but uh, things have been bad before in other ways, and in some ways far worse. God flooded this world. I mean, it's been worse before. So I just wanted to remind everyone, I'm reminding myself, but I'm reminding everyone else uh, along with that. And so um, don't worry too much about what's going on there in the evangelical world or in the greater world, the political world. Uh, I would say think as, as, as much as you can about what you can do, how you can take the gifts that God's given you, steward them well, take the talents he's given you, invest them well, and, and that's the way that I think you ensure that y- your little slice of the world, your your little town or your church or uh, your family even, I mean, it can go down to, to uh, just a few people, your friends. That's how you can ensure that there's some stability there, that there's some wisdom there, that there's... Um, that, that, that it's going to be an island of protection from the rest of the nonsense that's going on out there. There's so much of it. And um, and we see it more and more escalating. You know, the, the conservatives on talk radio sometimes will say, they get hopeful and gleeful almost about how the left is overplaying their hand. It's getting so crazy. People are going to wake up, they're going to realize how bad it's really, it is out there. And I've been waiting for that. It doesn't seem to be happening, and I don't think actually it will, to be honest, because we know, as Christians we know, that things can get so much worse as far as the depravity of man, uh, the nonsense that man's able to justify in his mind for the purpose of doing sin. You, you don't really find an endpoint, And it, sure, some people are waking up to some extent. I saw this video not long ago of a uh, LGBT activist from the 90s who is saying, look, I wouldn't have been involved if I knew we would be doing transgender library hour with children. And you look at that and you think, well, you know, it's a little late, but thanks. And then you think to yourself, um, but for, you know, I I wondered this in my head, for every person like that, how many people, though, are going the opposite direction who are saying, you know, transgender library hour is, is actually tolerant? And I mean, are those numbers growing? Are those numbers diminishing? Uh, I think it's it's still a minority of people, but like all the leftist innovations, it always starts with a little minority, and they keep pushing, keep pushing, keep, keep pushing, keep pushing, and they take advantage of uh, the tolerance, the tr- the tolerance that is out there from uh, people on the right, and uh, the, you know the, they tend to be more totalitarians. They're gatekeepers. They want to gatekeep everything. Once they infiltrate an organization, they lock the door behind them. They don't let anyone else in who doesn't share their ideology, whereas... People on the right tend to be very uh, accepting of people, wh- whether their ideas are in line with theirs or not. And so that's just the nature of the beast. In fact, I was uh, watching uh, or listening. What was I doing? I was I was listening to a podcast. I was li- listening to one of the few podcasts I listened to, Brian McClanahan's uh, podcast, The Brian McClanahan Show. And, and I I realized that's a more of a history podcast, American history, and some people will call me a nerd. That's fine. Uh, but he was talking about something that was very relevant, and he does this often. He'll he'll take history and he'll talk about a modern political situation and he'll apply history to it. I mean, he he was talking about Martin Van Buren in relationship to the modern Democratic Party and, and just making parallels. It was interesting, and uh, but but what he was saying um, the other day that uh, caught my attention was how some of the candidates, the Republican candidates. Uh, in Georgia, in Pennsylvania, you have Dr. Oz running. I forget who's running in Georgia. I think it's a football star. Uh, and uh, I think he had another example. But the, there's a lot of um, celebrities that are running that aren't great candidates at all, but they are they have some name recognition. And the Republican Party tends to now uh, gravitate towards that, I guess, the, the popularity contest candidates. And he didn't say this, but I thought of this how much of that is being successful in one area in which you can still or could still be successful while being somewhat conservative politically? Uh, And you could, I think, also say sharing Christian moral virtues, values. How much of this is being able to build a platform in an unrelated field? It's not political necessarily. It's politicized, but you can get around. You can survive without having to uh, tell everyone that you're a... Pro abortion, LGBT, affirming, whatever. You know, you you don't have to believe those things. You're just a good football player or you're just you're just good at you're a good doctor on television. And then making the switch. So trying to jump from the platform you've built in those arenas to a different arena, to the political arena. And I'm wondering whether that's actually what we're gonna see more and more of because you it's very difficult to build for yourself a name. And without it getting tarnished in 2.5 seconds, it's it's hard for you to build a name in the media, in Hollywood, entertainment, in education, or in politics. In politics, you can kind of do it, but it's, it's difficult. So these more quote-unquote neutral, and everything's becoming political, but the few things that are still quote-unquote neutral where you can have conservative ideas you can believe those things and still be successful and get name recognition and then jump into a more politicized role i'm wondering if that's going to happen more and more and more because uh you just don't have the name recognition it's hard to get off the ground you, you can't the gatekeepers have closed the gates and so unless you at a very early stage dot all the i's cross all the t's uh kiss the ring and say i am a leftist you don't get into those those uh organizations look at what's what's happened with chris pratt um and and how he's you, you know, he barely says anything political he barely says anything even christian i would say it's it's very generic stuff here and there and it's rare and yet he is hated uh i mean there's attempts to get him canceled from his roles in guardians of the galaxy and then and this is a guy that you'd think of man he's not even that like <laughs> hardcore at all uh and yet uh, the intolerance is just on level 10. So that, I don't know, that, that's something I've been thinking about is prediction, I guess, are we going to be seeing more and more of that, but you can be, I think, um, it, it's, it's better to be influential on a local level, if we had 50 Ron DeSantis, and I'm not saying he's the epitome of every, whatever, the perfect governor or anything, but he certainly is showing more courage than most of the Republican governors out there, if even just all the red states had someone like him at the helm. It wouldn't. I don't think it wouldn't matter as much. It still would matter, but it wouldn't matter as much who was in the White House. And and that's my point is if you had towns across this country and counties across this country, and and down to the very household uh, that you know had strong leadership, had um, had people who were unwilling to to bend to the nonsense, then you know. People can, the corral of celebrities that's out there for the Democrat Party and for the American Left, they can they can platform as much as they want. It's not going to it's not going to get anywhere if people don't uh, accept it. It'll all be astroturf. It won't be organic. It won't. So th- that's just that. That's what I believe. That's what I um, have strived to encourage you to take action on. And it could be we have limited time. It could just be getting involved in your church. It could be just getting involved in you know becoming a town councilman. It could be on the school board. It could be, um, it, it could be even smaller than that. It could be well, I don't have much time, but I can coach kids and I can get involved in their lives and I can um, imply or, or impart to them biblical values. And, and so, so there's so many things you can do. Um, starts with discipleship at the the bottom organic level, but I I think that all hands need to be on deck. At this point in our country's history we are we're in peril (laughs) we are in peril and it's easy to look at that like peter looking at the waves but just remember that uh god is still in control we have gone through in some ways worse times in history and we could have a revival right around the corner that is possible do i anticipate it not really but I, i i'm open to it and if it does happen it'll be in it'll be kindled initially at least this is how historically revivals have happened in the hearts. In the minds of people like you and me, it's going to be uh, it's going to be the Holy Spirit doing a work in our churches, and we're going to see it. And so, anyway, that's my my spiel uh, to open up with. Uh, I have so many things to talk about, and I just spent over twelve minutes talking about that. But uh, hopefully, that was encouraging to some of you out there, um, and maybe you're thinking through practically what can I do. and And I think that would be uh, the goal. So, uh, man, there's a number of other things I want to say, other things to get to. But what we'll do, I think. We'll start out here. I just want to make a few announcements, and then I'm just going to go through a few news stories. And we're going to end on this. I want to share with you uh, a book that I just read. It's called uh, John Jasper, if you can see it, man, the light's so bright, The Unmatched Black Philosopher and Preacher. John Jasper, The Unmatched Black Philosopher and Preacher. I've read a number of books that I want to talk about, but this one I finished yesterday, and so it's a little fresh in my mind, and I thought it was it was a pretty interesting, and, and someone that I respect greatly uh, in some ways— um, you know, a role model, I think a candidate for being a role model, and you probably never heard of him. So uh, we will talk a little bit about John Jasper. So let's uh, start, though, the podcast uh, here, if we may. Uh, I want to let you know about Bradford Christian College. If you haven't uh, heard about Bradford Christian College before, I've talked about it, but uh, it's you can go to bradfordchristiancollege.com, and it's a biblical uh, principle approach to college. They call their, um, their way of approaching education a biblical principle approach. Uh, they subscribe to the Westminster Standards. They're orthodox. They're against social justice, and they provide a mentorship. They provide a, a person who's going to meet with the student, whoever that is, and I, I have mentioned before, I think this is good for homeschoolers to consider, but hey, maybe you're someone who's, you're older, and you're considering continuing education, and this is a, a, might be a good option for you. Uh, check them out. I mean, you can email them. Uh, their uh, email address is right on the website, and... Uh, badfordchristiancollege.com. dot again. They have uh, a few degrees. They have two uh, right now: Bachelors of Arts in Theological Studies, Bachelors of Arts in Christian Education. And it's not like a. Uh, I've done this with actually a number of institutions where you have an online school, right? And you do some tests, you do some multiple choice quizzes, you write a few papers. You don't even know who your proctor is, and and I've been that proctor. I've actually taught some of these the college courses. And the human scale is just so much. I can't get to know every student. Sometimes I get to know some more than others, but it's just, it's all through text. You're not usually talking to them. I have had conversations, but it's rare. Bradford Christian College is intentional though. And I love this. They are going to meet with you regularly. Every week, you're going to be talking to your mentor and they're going to be looking at your progress, seeing how they could help, tailoring things to you. That's what you need in education, to be honest with you. That is a much better approach than this mass factory system that we have going, which it hardly, it's, it's, it's been around for two seconds. I mean, this, the education approach that we're using today is so new. Uh, And I I think it's much better to go back to more of a classical approach, uh, more uh, mentorship, more application. And uh, Bradford Christian College intends to do that. They intend to give you the kind of education the founding fathers would have had. That's at least their goal. And I would just suggest check them out, if you're looking into this kind of thing, they are accredited. Uh, so you can get your bachelor's of arts in Christian education and then go on to uh, a master's. And, and I think that's what a lot of homeschoolers do. That's kind of what I did. I started when I was 16 at community college. And then I, uh, I, I ended up going in getting a master's earlier. I started my master's work at least earlier than most students would start it at my age. And I already had the bachelor's under my belt, and it was much cheaper. I was able to live at home. It just, I think the way that we did it in my house at least made a lot of sense. And if we had something like this, we might have utilized this. And uh, so check it out, uh, maybe even earlier than 16. I don't know. I'm, it depends what uh, – I don't know what the laws are in your state or your region, but um, this is an online school, so you should be able to, when, when a student is ready – Uh, start taking these courses, uh, but ask them um, what uh, they suggest at bradfordchristiancollege.com. Okay. Uh, One last final announcement. Um, You've heard me talk about it, and now I think I've lost it. Ah, Let's see. Oh, here it is. Uh, The Adirondack Men's Retreat with Dr. Russell Fuller, October 28th through 30th. Please sign up. Please come if you're a man. Uh, I'm just getting great feedback already. People are excited about this, and I was expecting this to be something for my church for some local men and maybe a few podcast folks, but a lot of podcast folks are coming out now and uh, please email me. And and I only give you my email just for coordinating rides. So that's, that's what this is for, but uh, you can email me at Jonathan Harris, my full name, Jonathan Harris, 1989 at gmail.com. Just email me there. If you're coming and you don't have a ride, um, you know, if you're coming from the Midwest, from the South, you're flying into Albany, you're flying into New York, whatever it is. And we'll coordinate, we'll find rides for you as much as we possibly can. I know people are coming from all those areas. So um, that would be great. If if you can come, uh, we, um, it, it's $176. That's a good price. Now, the way that we have it right now is uh, people are, we're, we're trying to get like three people per room if possible. There may be some, some options. I think as we get closer, there actually will be options. Uh, I know um, one person already asked me, hey, could I have my own room? And I said, I think that that should be fine. Uh, once we get to that point um, uh, in, in October, I'll know better kind of what room is available and what room isn't. But uh, but yes, we, we can work with that stuff. But um, to, to bring the, the cost down as much as possible, it's kind of you're, you're bunking with other guys. Uh, so bring your protection <laughs> if they're snoring. But uh, this is, I mean, th- this is where you get to know people. This is the kind of men's retreats I actually like. And it can be for an introvert, it can be kind of challenging at first. You You wonder, Oh, man, I'm going to have to meet all these people. I have to be in close proximity to them. Yeah, and that's how you want it, actually. That's how you want a men's retreat because you're going to get to know people, and, and these might be even lifelong-lasting friendships. These are people that share a lot of the same concerns with you, a lot of the same values. They're listening to this podcast, many of them. They're, uh, they want to hear what Russell Fuller has to say. I mean, that alone, he's a man of courage. He's a rare gem in today's evangelical landscape, and to have an opportunity to be with him on such an intimate level, which is what this is that that is worth its weight in gold. I mean, I, I would take this way over and nothing against these conferences, but I would, I would go and I've been to the master's Seminary, early. What is it called? Shepherds conference many years. I would go to this way over going to the Shepherds conference just because it's guy stuff. We get to be outside by the fire, hiking, whatever, outdoor activities and learn from, about Jeremiah in a smaller setting. It's not just getting in line to hopefully get the autograph of, you know, the person. I've seen these lines at at a conference. No, you'll be able to talk to Russell Fuller. You'll be able to connect with him. You'll be able to eat a meal with him uh, possibly. I mean, this is, he's going to be accessible and it's not going to be like there's a lot of people there. So I would just uh, encourage you if if you want to tack on another day or two in the Adirondacks, they're a beautiful area, especially that time of year. It's probably just going to be past peak. Although we haven't had a lot of rain and it's been kind of warm. And I'm wondering if, it might be peak. We'll see what the fall looks like, but it, it, we may hit it right. We'll see. But October 28th through 30th, uh, four men, and uh, look forward to uh, seeing you there. It's old school. You send in your check, but go to the link in the info section to sign up, and then you just send in your check uh, to the mailing address there, Grace Bible Church, for the $176. If, if money's an, an issue, email me. I want everyone to be able to come, okay? That's my heart in all this. All right, let's do news stories. How does that sound? Let's do new stories. And where are we going to start? Um, let's see. Man. I, <laughs> I got Liberty University. I got Southeastern. I got Southern Seminary. And I I got so many things here. I got, um, got so many things. Let's start... Oh, man. Let's start here, actually. How about the Gospel Coalition? Can we start with the Gospel Coalition? Let's start with the Gospel Coalition. So... I was on a podcast with A.D. Robles yesterday uh, or two days ago, uh, August 25th, so two days ago. And the podcast was about the Gospel Coalition and some of the worst articles. And I said, A.D., in the middle of the podcast, I said, let me just go to the Gospel Coalition website right now, right now. And so I did. And immediately, like the main main uh, uh, article that was being put out there was by a guy named Chris Watkin. It, was, it said, CRT, Critical Race Theory versus Classical Liberalism versus Christianity. And one of the things I told Ada, I think I said it before I even saw this. I said, look, one of the things the Gospel Coalition does is they present two options to you. And they try to, and sometimes they're diametrically opposed sometimes, but they're the two basic options. And then they'll try to present Christianity as this third way, this transcending option that it rejects, equally rejects. That's important. Equally rejects these other two options. And it's 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 the dialectic, right? It uh, takes the best of both worlds or rejects both equally. And it it's, serves as... What Christians, it, it, it's, it's like the, the, the option that no one saw that every Christian, though, is required to or should believe in. The option no one saw that every Christian should believe in. That's Gospel Coalition in a nutshell. So anyway, I looked over this article while I was on this podcast with AD, and I was like, look look at this. And I went to uh, this particular, um, let's see, I I jumped, I jumped to this particular section right here. And I just want to read this to you. Um, all right. So here it, it, it keeps comparing what a critical race theory says to what liberalism says. And liberalism, not in the sense you're probably thinking of it, liberalism in the classical liberalism sense. Uh, so it, it's the liberal order, the this order of, uh, of democracy and tolerance and reason. And anyway, uh, so it, it it compares CRT with liberalism. And then here's what the Bible says. I want to just read for you one of these. All right. CRT racism will remain endemic. Society cannot be reformed without first tearing it down. There's no prospect of racial justice short of this radical unmaking of society. I'd say that's accurate. Liberalism, radical change to address questions of justice, is rejected in favor of incremental and consensual progress. I would say, well, it's liberalism's a little harder because it's so broad, um, but. Okay, let's grant it. That's what liberalism says. It's more in favor of incrementalism because of law, law and order, and the, and it takes governments sometimes time to work. And by the way, that's by design. Our constitution uh, itself with the checks and balances, that's, it's by design that things when things get done, and if there's overwhelming favor, then you can get things done fairly quickly if you want, but most things are going to have pushback. And the, the goal is to protect minority rights as much as possible. Against the majority uh, mob rule, the goal is to try to make sure that uh, you know, and and that's with things like you know, you need two thirds of a majority for this, or three quarters of a majority for this, or you you know, you can't just fifty one percent and you rule the day on certain issues. So it's designed to have breaks. That that's the whole, and and I think that's a good, wise thing. But uh, anyway, the here's what the Bible says in contrast to both these things. The Bible avoids critical race theory's tragedy of perpetual conflict as well as liberalism's incrementalism. Really? That's in the Bible? (laughs) The Bible, it does, the Bible's against incrementalism. Uh, Well, on some things, I suppose, you know, thou shalt not murder. Nothing incremental about that. Stop murdering, right? Uh, But uh, it doesn't, I don't know if that's a blank check for every form of, you know, like, so, okay, welfare state, right? The Bible, I would say, is against the welfare state. Is the Bible, though, in favor of end it right now and all the people that are relying on welfare, well, they can starve? <laughs> I, I would be shocked if anyone actually believed that because we don't have that specifically in the Bible. So I guess by this particular author's uh, assessment, liberalism would be in favor of a gradual change, right? And I would be in favor of that too. I don't think you end it right away. Uh, there's some things you can, like abortion, end it now, right? Um, you're killing people something like that, you, you got to do a cost benefit and you got to think through, okay, this is going to do a lot of damage. Let, how do we kind of as quickly as possible, but without, with minimizing damage that could be caused, uh, ease, ease off this thing, you know, ease off the, uh, the speed on the uh, speeding or the the gas pedal and ease onto the brakes. Something, some issues I think are like that. Um, and so, Anyway, uh, so, sometimes there's a time period you want to give uh, for people to prepare to, uh, to to ease off of something and or to do something new, you know. Um, I was just even reading this morning in 1 Samuel, you know, how David, where was he? He was, maybe it was yesterday. Um, I forget the name. I can't keep all the, the names of these, like Amalekite and uh, Philistine kings and stuff straight. But anyways, David is staying. David. Uh, With a Philistine king, essentially, basically says, "David, you need to go, and you know, give you till tomorrow morning to go." There's a time period that was given; it was short, but there's a time period, and a lot of things are like that, where you you give people time to prepare. You so anyway, that's gradualism, that's incrementalism. I think a lot of issues are going to be incremental, and we need wisdom to figure out which ones are incremental, which ones are immediate. Uh, So, let's talk about what the Bible says here. According to gospel coalition. The Bible avoids CRT's tragedy of perpetual conflict as well as liberals incrementalism. Instead, it has an eschatological vision of radical transformative reconciliation in which members of every tongue, tribe, and nation will sing praise to God with one voice. Now, I got to say, I don't think CRT actually wants perpetual conflict. And and I'm thinking Marxism here, broadly speaking, CRT being an iteration of this. Marxism does think there's going to be a point in which you reach the state of communism. And so it's not—that's it's, an inaccurate portrayal in my mind. Uh, and then you have liberalism's incrementalism, and it's just—this is not just a weak argument on the point of the author here, that the Bible is somehow always against incrementalism or something. He it it, it doesn't specify what he's really—what issue. What issue are we talking about here? Uh, on abortion, sure. But uh, it, it invokes—the the article invokes Revelation 7. Every tribe, tribe, tongue, nation is going to be gathered around the throne, and all injustice will be held to account. Okay, agreed in the consummation of all things that will happen. This grand vision motivates practical efforts in the here and now. So where have you heard this, that you need to make your church look more diverse, you need to implement a program of racial reconciliation? Well, it's generally from people pushing the CRT narrative or some iteration of it. Well, now the Gospel Coalition in this article comes out and says, look, you've got to work towards this grand vision though, like now. This grand vision of eliminating all injustice and every, this diversified church around God's throne, you got to work towards that now. Okay, well, what does that look like? I would, I mean, I would say this is something Christ accomplishes as we just obey his commands. This isn't something, I'm not some i am not self consciously like, well, man, I, I'm going to do I witness to the white guy or the Asian guy. Oh, man, I got to think through this. I guess how many, let's run the numbers. How many white people versus Asians in heaven? Okay, I guess maybe I'll, maybe I'll witness to the Asian guy, you know, <laughs> like what, what is that, right? that's what, that's what we've been getting is like, if, unless your church is diverse, unless you're specifically targeting, crafting the lure you have for certain demographics, then you are somehow against the uh, command of revelation seven, except revelation seven isn't a command. It's a description. It's a description of the final state. And this is going to happen inevitably because this is what God does. And he just wants you to be faithful in your community. I was at a church in, uh, Virginia, when during the whole lockdowns and all, I was looking for a church that was open. And I went to this church and I thought this might be a good option until the pastor starts talking about how, and it's in the country, it's in the country, the pastor starts saying, chiding his congregation for not having enough black friends and spending way too much time with people that share their hobbies and not going and sharing time with people who uh, don't share their hobbies and how it's more important for them to... Be with people that aren't like them, who don't share their hobbies for the purpose of evangelism. And I thought right away, wait a minute, actually, God's equipped you. If you are if you like fishing, then you're going to probably want to take someone fishing, and that would make more sense. Someone who's into fishing, you can reach them better, because guess what? You have a commonality. Trust, there's a certain level of trust that's already been built there. Uh, someone who lives in your region, someone who looks like you, someone. all these things, don't tell me they don't. They do, uh, in sometimes small ways, but they do... Um, the, the more proximity, the more similarity, they, they do factor into, uh, the mission field that's going to be around you because they, you build a sense of trust with people that are like you in various ways. Now, I mean, obviously, okay. So there's, let's say there's a, a black guy across the street and we both share a love for fishing. And then there's a white guy who doesn't speak my language from Europe, who we share more genetics with, but I can't even understand him. Obviously, I share more in common with the black guy, right? And I'm that's going to be I'm in more proximity to him, all right. So I'm not because people freak out sometimes when I go down this path and they think that I'm, you know, oh no, you're making race so determinative. No, I'm not. I'm just saying it's it's proximity and that can be complicated. But what the pastor was getting at was you're you're missing the mark, which means you're kind of in sin, I guess, uh, if you are not stepping outside of your quote unquote comfort zone and putting yourself in inconvenient places in order to evangelize fine for people who want to do that i have no problem with it but you generally though we're going to be witnessing to people that are like us because that's the mission field that god's put in front of us it's like the good samaritan you're walking along the road this is the person god's put in front of you to help right it's the the person that uh is is has a need you're able to fulfill it and they're right there and you you can do it and so This I know this is a very short section, which means I have like 50 articles I'm probably not going to get to, but this is very short, but I think it just goes to show you that how confused the Gospel Coalition is, how they're still trying to do this third-way thing, and they can't even seem to represent the Bible accurately here. They're creating a command out of something that is just a, a description and, and look at the verse that they use here. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight. Well, the sentence that accompanies this is this. This grand vision motivates practical efforts in the here and now. So to make your church more diverse or make, you know, re- bring, bring about the state of affairs of Revelation 7, 9 through 10, you need to do work now. And this is the verse they use to support it. How does that even relate, right? It's so um and that's supposed to be the contrast between liberalism and Crt and it, it's not even it's it's such a s- simplified reductionistic reading of liberalism especially I just I can't I can't take this seriously I can't take that this is a helpful thing and I, we're not going to go through the rest of this but it's just it's not helpful it's not practical um it's what what at the end of the day though what is it trying to get you to do it's communicating to you Critical race theory is a lie. Classical liberalism is a lie. Christianity is true. And guess what? Christianity is. Boom! It's our version. And guess what? Our version is. Well, we got to work through the, th- towards this Revelation seven nine through ten. Well, that's not. That's not what Christianity teaches. That's a mischaracterization. Uh, Let's read the, the last uh, paragraph here. It says the Bible holds out a vision for working towards societies that benefit everyone, not just liberalism's associates in which no one is to blame, or CRT's perpetual struggles of one group against another. Okay, that's just a straw man. Liberalism's associations in which no one is to blame for anything. No one can ever be to blame uh, for, for racism or any problem that might exist out there. That, that's just a mischaracterization. Uh, Christians engage with issues of racial justice, neither to justify themselves nor only to bewail their sin, but in hope that the best aspirations of both critical race theory and classical liberalism will be transformatively, subversively fulfilled by the God in whose name the nations put their hoe. This is so classic TGC, that uh, we're, and that's what TGC wants to be. We're subversive. You know, we're not out there fighting culture wars blatantly. We're subversive where we fly under the radar and they don't even realize we're infiltrating them and they're going to all be Christians because they're going to see, wait a minute, I'm a critical race theorist, but guess what makes more sense? I can still have the good aspects of my CRT and guess what? It's in Christianity. Christianity has, uh, parallels those aspects. And I'm going be a classical liberal and like Christianity because look, Christianity parallels the aspects I like. And we can be transformative. We can we can transform this way. We can take the best of crt the best of crt what's the best of crt what's the i can tell you what the best of liberal societies are and i can probably tell you some weaknesses for for the liberalism liberalism is is going it, it's a um, unstable element in my mind uh, that's where we where we live right now we live in an unstable element and i think george washington who is was it? it was george washington i think no. It was man now i'm blanking i should not be blanking on this um I want to say George Washington, but I don't think it was. I think it was John Adams who talked about uh, the Constitution being made for religious people. Now, George Washington said things similar to that, so I'll just say it, George Washington as well. But most of the founders knew that we had to have virtue, and virtue depended on religion. And once you lost religion, you would lose virtue, and once you lost virtue, you would lose the— um, the, the the liberal order that they were drawing upon. And uh, I think Mark David Hall has actually a really good book that it gives you a lot of primary—it's uh, a secondary source, obviously, but it gives you a lot of primary sources uh, in, in the book. And I think it's uh, was America founded as a Christian nation, something like that. But Mark David Hall, good book on that. Uh, anyway, I can tell you liberalism is unstable. There is no form of government that is this side of heaven that's going to be stable the, the most stable form of government is a monarchy and king jesus is the king and if you have a good king even a a, a ruler who's, who's not jesus but you have a, a decent king you can have relative stability the problem is you get a bad king eventually and then it becomes it, it, it's terrible and so the the whole goal of the, the order in which we live right now and it's a result it's, it's a liberalism of kinds uh, of protecting uh, natural rights of trying to uh, have checks and balances and a Republican form. Uh, the, the whole point is to try to inspire gridlock when people, when tyrants arise. The problem is when you have a good guy arise, there's also, also could be gridlock. So there's pros and cons. Anyway, um, that's that's different than CRT. CRT, and, and there's some assumptions liberal the liberal order is based upon. Yes. And some of those assumptions, I think, uh, at least taken too far and take taken to their logical conclusions by some uh, I think have been bad they've been um, when someone th- believes when they, when they come up with a humanism of kinds because liberalism can mean everything from like kind of a Rousseauian ish kind of where the reason for democracy is because we're if, if you just get get out the vote get as many people to vote as possible and the wisdom of all these people you know we're gonna have the the best option available uh, and but it's everything from that to you know edmund Burke gets kind of categorized into that it's so broad it's so broad crt though it's got it's more narrow crt has a um it's more like a religion i've made this point uh you could say liberalism the liberal order is built upon uh I, I could i could let it pass if someone said it's built on uh humanistic notions and there's a religious element i could say sure i can see that i can see what you're talking about there but i think there have been Christians, though, who have been able to uh, and, and without compromising their Christianity at all, have been able to engage in the liberal order that exists. It's not so with CRT. CRT is is very blatant uh, about who the oppressed are, who the oppressors are, what repentance or forgiveness or lamenting or all that what that looks like, um, and you know they have their own in, uh, inspired uh, books, their CRT perspectives. There are minority oppressed perspectives that cannot be questioned. It's their Bible, right? They they have their own saints, the victims of police shootings. It doesn't matter how much bad they did. There's just so much there that you could look. If, if you honestly take a look at it, it's it's a religion, like blatantly so. And you once you subscribe to it, you're getting sucked into a religion. So I, I don't think it's, it's a, even a fair comparison here. Like you have this over here, you have this over here. And in the middle is Christianity and it's reasonable. But the whole goal of this is to take from CRT, to take uh, from classical liberalism and to take their good elements. I can tell you in classical liberalism, some some good elements. I just talked about them. With CRT, I just, what? What am I going to find that's so good in CRT? That's what I would ask Chris Watkin at the Gospel Coalition. What's so good about CRT? Tell me those analytical, useful tools that it has that are just so helpful to us, right? The only thing I've ever heard a Christian say is, well, you can spot racism better. Really, because it confuses, it breaks whatever barometer or metric we have to find "quote unquote" racism, because everything gets becomes racist. It's a, a, by three steps or less you can attach anything to racism. CR, CRT is a cancer; it just it's it it gets into everything. It it actually breaks your capacity for that. So, what is it? What is it that's so positive? That's what I would want. So, Gospel Coalition again recently endorsing on some level CRT. That's what this is. So. All right. Let's talk about another Gospel Coalition article. This is Benjamin Watson. Benjamin Watson is the article. And look, he has a lot of stuff at Gospel Coalition. Oh, sorry. This is not a book. Never mind. We're this is not a Gospel Coalition article. My bad. I pulled this up cuz I just wanted to find out more about Benjamin Watson and he was he used to be a tight end for the New England Patriots football player. But look, he's got a bunch of stuff and, and it's it's woke. It's a lot of it's just woke. Uh, even from 2014. Benjamin Watson on Ferguson. I've I read some of this stuff. Now, um, I want to go, though, to something that he posted this morning. And what he posted, someone sent this to me and asked me about it. And the article is, you can't define woke, so I will. Benjamin Watson, you can't define woke, so I will. And so he, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he makes a point that woke is now a four-letter word. It's terrible. People, politicians use it. There's, a, there's one of those politicians. Governor Ron DeSantis using the term woke. Uh, and and scoring political points. And his whole point is that, well, these people don't know what woke actually means. What does woke actually mean? Well, look, there's a song from 1938, written about nine, it's called uh, Scottsboro Boys, written about nine black teenagers falsely accused of raping two white women. And one of the lines in it is, I made this little song about down there. So I advise everyone, be a little careful when they uh, go along through there, best stay woke, keep their eyes open. So he's saying, look, this is rooted in the black community, that uh, staying woke is is to be careful, to be careful. And in this case, being careful about the potential to be falsely accused, uh, assuming because you're a black guy. And and then he talks about W.E.B. Du Bois. And he says, "And remember, W.E.B. Du Bois, W.E.B. Du Bois is a communist, okay? And he says this. Uh, in the souls of black folk the negro is a sort of seventh son born with a veil and gifted with a second sight in this american world a world which yields him no true self-consciousness but only lets him see himself through the revelation of the other world it is a peculiar sensation this double consciousness this sense of always looking at oneself through the eyes of others of measuring one's soul by the tape of a world that looks on in amused contempt and pity one ever feels this tunis on a an American, a Negro, two souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings, two warring ideals, and one dark body whose dogged strength alone keeps it from being torn asunder. And then um, the, uh, the article goes on and it says this. In essence, being woke is understanding this double consciousness and all its implications. I would agree. That is exactly what it is. So, Because what you're hearing is a, a rudimentary form of standpoint in epistemology here. Du Bois, and it's not a surprise here. I mean, the critical race theory draws on a number of different traditions. It's not just Marxism. Marxism, though, uh, and, and boy, would have been, I guess, a, for, a Marxist, but it it draws on um, the American radical tradition as well. And that's really more where Du Bois fits. And you see these elements coming out of a number of these things. You see it in Marxism with the idea of class consciousness. You see it here, though, with this idea that if you're a minority, if you're a, a ethnic minority, then you have a perspective that others do not have because you have to inhabit two different worlds. You have to inhabit the world of the, the American, he says here, and you have to inhabit your own culture's world. Now, you could say this about any immigrant group. You could. I feel this way about my own country now in some ways, right? I feel like I'm an alien to, to the country that, I mean, uh, my ancestors, uh, you know, on both sides, uh, would have been some of the original pioneers and uh, they I, I'm related to presidents and explorers. And I mean, and now I feel like an alien in the, the country that, you know, my my people helped build, And so I, I could claim this, you know, well, you know, the Christian conservative has to have a double consciousness. I mean, really, anyone can do this to some extent if they feel like they're on the out group. Because they have to understand the in-group, and then they have to understand their own group's whatever that is perspective on things, and sort of and these two are unreconciled, and and so being woke is understanding this double consciousness. It says it is maintaining dignity, strength, and pride while grappling with visitation rights in the land of your birth. Blackness is beautiful, but realizing you are a member of the other, and when you hear the other, you, I, I always think Foucault. Uh, brings both pride and precaution as one contemplates the perception white America, the majority culture may have of your ilk. And it it goes on with things we've already all heard before. Uh, You have access to knowledge. You have access to experience. You have a perspective that others don't have. And therefore uh, you are able to see things. You're woke. You're aware. You see things others cannot see. And therefore there's more of a truth value put on your perspective. People should listen to you more he goes on he talks about eric mason eric mason uh summarizes concept in his book woke church uh and it's uh we've gone over woke church you can go back in the podcast we did a whole review of woke church it's it's uh there's heresy in it i'll just put it that way it's false teaching there's false teaching in woke church uh so he goes on and on about uh how woke became popular during blm and it kind of became uh, synonymous with blm and with CRT. And that's probably how most of us know about it. I didn't know about the word woke till what 2000? I don't know, 1617, at least might have been 18. I it was, it, it was probably Ferguson, maybe when I first heard it. And I and at first, you, you just think like, what? Because because it's not just coming out of the mouths of, it's not black people who are saying this, uh, or, or people I should say, even from urban contexts who are using uh, a certain vernacular and using that term. It's not a eubonics usage. I, it was like, it was white people who grew up in Michigan who <laughs> are all of a sudden saying, you know, I'm woke now or something. I mean, Eric Mason calls Matt Chandler, uh, he said, that's a woke brother. Matt Chandler is talking about how he's woke. And, uh, oh, who was it? Who was it? Oh, man. There was uh, Ray, Ro- yeah, Ray Ortland. Ray Ortland had said that about being woke. He said, it's such a compliment when people call me woke. And all these pasty white people, all of a sudden using this term, and you're like, what? what? Like, what? It was funny at first. It was like, what? why would? Why are you using this term? And proudly so. And, and this is what I think people miss uh, about that term, is that this was this was shoved down so many people's throats. This was foisted upon us as if you had morally superior high ground, if you were woke if you were woke, you had morally superior high ground, you were better, you were understanding more, you had more knowledge, you were, you were just superior in every way. And, and so uh, <laughs> the backlash against it is is probably well deserved. Because it, it was honestly, it was made to order. It, it's not, obviously, it's not the king's English. So there's had a perception of being bad grammar, because it, woke sounds past tense, but you're using it as a present. T- it, so anyway, the tenses were kind of messed up. And so um, it's pe- people, I think, found it unusual to hear that, especially coming out of the mouth of, like I said, pasty people from the Midwest or, or New England or something. And uh, and then it was pushed on us so hard, the backlash has been like making fun of it. Like, oh, oh, you're woke now, huh? You're woke. Oh, wow. Oh, good. So great to be woke, uh, like in a sarcastic way. Um, and, and now attributing all kinds of negative things that were never even like I think correct this is one of the things that I think is probably correct about this article actually uh, from Benjamin Watson is that the term woke um, was originally specifically t- about racial um, uh, per- perceptions of racial injustice, uh, disparities that existed between certain uh, groups of people on a ethnic, on ethnic lines, but it did get applied pretty quickly and by the left, by the way, uh, into feminism and to other things and other quote unquote, marginalized groups. And so now I mean, the right when they use the term, I mean, I've heard even like, you know, hey, they, they still have masks in that restaurant. Oh, they're woke. And I, I'm like, wait, what is that? What? <laughs> well, because now it's being applied to anything where someone it, it, it's a smear, actually, well, it's, it's a it's making fun of is what it is. It's, it's making fun of people that think they're better than you, all right? And so if someone has a mask and they think, well, I you know know about the virus and you don't or something, then to call them woke is kind of like, it's, it's saying like, oh, you're that false kind of, like you think you're smart, you think you're in the know, but you're really not. You know, you think that there's this systemic abuse with police, but there really isn't. You think that there's uh, a wage gap between men and women. There really isn't. That's how woke is being used now. It's being used by the right. It's weaponized by the right, but it was after it was weaponized by the left. He doesn't really get into this, um, and, you know, he he's just—his point— in this uh, article is with he says this with such a wide swath of issues strategically placed in the woke bucket there are several that I am patently against as well but their purpose is to poison the well and block progress those ancillary issues have little to do with woke so he's upset now he's mad that the conservatives have hijacked their term and are now appropriating it to make fun of the left and he's he's upset about it and it's like well if the left hadn't shoved it down our throats for years I don't think this would be a problem But that's part of the story he's kind of skipped over. Uh, So he, uh, let's go to the end here. He, He concludes the whole thing with this. He says, in some ways, woke hasn't changed though. Woke reminded the marginalized to remain vigilant and prepared to defend their livelihood. In the new bastardized forms, it serves the same purpose reminding us that our concern and even our days of remembrance are inconvenient and unimportant to far too many. So he's accusing, this is funny. This is funny to me. Okay, think about this, think about it. Grammatical rules: using the term "woke" as a present tense reality is not grammatically correct. Okay, you would learn that in English class, at least you used to. I don't know if now you would, but it's not the King's English, right? So you could have people bristle about it. Oh my goodness, they're using this term "woke" and they're using it wrongly. It's it's supposed to be in the in the past tense, and they're using it in the present tense, right? And (laughs) you need a British accent to speak the Queen's English. And uh, now, though, the the it says, so that would be one of the critiques. And then the conservatives now have used it to apply it to everything because they think it's funny. Now you have someone from the left more politically, Christian, right? Christian. Uh, Benjamin Watson is a um, celebrity in the Christian world. He's coming out and he's bristling in the same way. Think about it. He's saying, you've hijacked our word. You've taken it. And now you're using it for your own purposes. You've bastardized the term. You've corrupted what was once so pure. That's what he's saying. The term woke was so pure and you've corrupted it. You conservatives, you horrible people that conflate categories and you use this word to jam conversations. It's like, yeah, preach. Guys, preach to yourselves. We didn't come up with the word. You all did. And then you used it to claim moral high ground and to jam conversations as if where well, we're woke and you're not, as if the whole point of the word was you're missing out, that you're blind, that you can't see, that you're less than. That was the whole point. And now you're bristling about the word's been taken from us. Well, <laughs> it's like, talk about a failure to, um, to to see one's own hypocrisy here. You know, they've hijacked the word that was already, a they bastardized a term that was originally a bastardized term. And that word, by the way, for some who think I'm using vulgarity, I'm using the word he's using here, but it's it actually is in in literature that is a correct, you can use that word and you're using it about something that um, has been corrupted or tainted or something like that. I don't use the word, but since he's using the word, uh, and, and it is, it, 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 I don't view this usage of the term as necessarily the crass usage that uh, is often used. Shakespeare used the term. Uh, I I just wanted to put a disclaimer out there uh, for parents. I you know apologize if that if you're now having to explain to your kids what this word means. But there is I think a legitimate use for it. Maybe you can explain that uh, possibly. But anyway, the term that he's using here it w- is about a term that originally was that. <laughs> That's the whole point. So he says this uh, recent misappropriation. Misappropriation <laughs> proves the enduring necessity. Necess- Necessity, I can speak, of being woke because the residue of anti-blackness still resides in the underpinnings of American society. That's right, the underpinnings of American society. Right below the surface, the anti-blackness, the potentially hurt feelings of the majority still remain a stumbling block to justice. To be woke is to desire justice, America promised, and to keenly understand where it has miserably fallen short and valiantly overcome. Some people, who would rather all of us stay quietly asleep. I'd rather stay woke. So still claiming the moral high ground, still using the term and saying it's it uh, applies to me and I'm truly woke. And these people that are using the term and weaponizing it, they don't even understand what it means. Okay, uh, I hope that Benjamin Watson's day gets better, but uh, there you have the, uh, chlor- the the pearl clutching of the modern evangelical, Knowing what things to fight on, the modern evangelical elite knowing the priorities. Then this is certainly, I would say, a big priority, right? Uh, those people who are using the term woke and they're using it in a mocking way, um, that is, uh, that is Benjamin Watson right there. And and I think that it deserves mockery, guys. And I I, I try to be, I, I take an academic approach to a lot of things, and but this this kind of, it's so hypocritical. There there is a mockery that is well deserved, I think when someone goes down this path. All right, uh, let's talk about, man, there are so many things I have on my list here. Uh, let's Can we do a few more Gospel Coalition articles and then we will stop? We're gonna start, um, ooh, I haven't listened to this yet. Let's listen together. Let me put my headphones on and uh, let's see how long it is. This just got released August 27, 2022, that is today. Fresh off the press of the Gospel Coalition, Rebecca McLaughlin is anti-racism biblical.
1: Just like the word woke, the word anti-racism can mean different things to different people. Some Christians will use that term to mean being actively against racism. They'll use it to acknowledge the history of racial oppression.
0: Okay, so the, the, the music in the background reminds me of an, a commercial uh, for sheltering uh, for animals, animal shelter, <laughs> commercial, support your local animal shelter. Look at all these puppies that don't have a home. I don't know why they're using that. <laughs> uh, I, I guess it's to evoke sympathy in us. But it, she starts off with saying that uh, the woke, can ju- it means different things to different people. But didn't we just find out in the last article that we just read from a prominent gospel coalition author that actually woke has a fixed meaning and it where that, that conservatives are misappropriating it they're uh, using the term incorrectly and it's so horrible but now we find out from Rebecca McLaughlin also prominent at the Gospel Coalition that actually woke has has different meanings to different people so so which is it
1: anyway and the importance of Christians not just stepping Aside from actively oppressing folks of other racial backgrounds, especially our black brothers and sisters, there'll be others who will use the. Term-
0: I love how she says this. It, it, step aside. Like, so you're actively oppressing other brothers and sisters. So just step aside. Just is that a, that sounds like a liberal, gradual approach to me? Step aside. It's, a, it's so, and, and maybe that is the uh, the winsomeness the of the British. Uh, truly, they uh, they can say things, and, and it's you know. I, I grew up in um, upstate New York most of my life, and a lot of Italian friends. When they talk to you, it is, you know, arms are moving, the voice is elevated, and all they're saying is, like, can you go feed the dog or <laughs> take out the trash? Or, well, you know, they're, they're trying to get their point across about something inconsequential. And, and the British can be talking about nuclear holocaust, and it's like, oh, look at the flame of this. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe, maybe, but it's just, it, it seems to me uh, like it's just very. Um, the The tone of this whole thing, the music, the it, it's calming. It's it's like a go to sleep, relax, step aside. But she's talking about something that, in her mind, is so terrible. It's literally like racial violence, and, and is what she's talking about. But that's, it's an odd tone. It's a mixed message. It's, it, and why is that? Maybe you can put it in the comments. I don't get this. I don't quite understand this mixed message.
1: Racism, and bundle in with it. All sorts of beliefs that Christians cannot and must not affirm. In particular, anti-racism is sometimes tethered in people's minds with affirming gay and lesbian identities for Christians. So if I were invited to participate in an anti-racism training in, in a secular workplace, I would need to be very discerning about what I took away from that training. There may well be some things that I would learn along the way that could be helpful To me, as a Christian, as I think about how to actively love those who are from other racial backgrounds, but there would likely also be things that as a Christian, I would not want to affirm or embrace. And as in any other workplace situation, we'll need to be discerning in the situation that we're in.
0: Now go to sleep. Go to sleep. Think of calm things. Think of the ocean against the coast. (laughs) Okay, so... Uh, this is Rebecca McLaughlin's short video on the phrase anti-racism, and that was anything but helpful. Uh, we didn't, the, honestly, the article we just read was a little more helpful, because it was like, hey, woke has a fixed meaning, and it's like, yeah, you could historically trace out what woke means, and this one is is just, it's so esoteric. It's just, the, the music is, and she's, um, basically, what I'm getting from this, this minute and a half video is that woke can be bad if it's applied to unbiblical things such as lgbt affirmations that we can't hold to and we know rebecca mclaughlin is pretty to the left in an evangelical uh metric at least she's far she's to the left because she, she thinks like you can have these same-sex attractions and that's not a sin and uh and 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 so she But she would say, like being engaging in those things would be wrong. So that's where woke or anti racism become problems. But when it comes to the actual uh, BLM narrative, she doesn't actually confront it. She doesn't really affirm it. She kind of does though, because she so she she doesn't, yeah, I guess she I would say she does kind of affirm it implicitly, but it's not a direct affirmation. It's so vague you don't really know what she's talking about other than we should step aside from doing racial harm. And that Christians are somehow doing this somehow. And that the only unbiblical thing about being woke would be the LGBT stuff. And so that would imply that the other stuff is correct, that there is systemic racism, that it can be found in the places which everyone knows the BLM narrative is pushing. It's, it's in the police departments. It's in, it's in the history, the way it's taught, it's, it's in everything. And so, uh, so I would say this is, again, the Gospel Coalition, once again, in the span of two days, affirming implicitly CRT again, somehow. But it's it's so implicit. It's so subversive. It's so sneaky. And you want to go to sleep listening to it because it sounds like it's a go to sleep video or save the puppies. Uh, all right. Let's talk about, can we do one more Gospel Coalition or two two more? Let's see. Uh Oh, I wanted to say something nice. We're going to say something nice about Gospel Coalition. All right, one more Gospel Coalition article. I lost my mom to Facebook. How to shepherd a flock being formed by algorithms. Now, this is some an article that someone asked me to comment on. Uh, so I haven't read it. So this will be cold reading. Uh, let's start here at the beginning. Sherry began to cry. Her husband put an arm around her, pulled her close, and said it'll be okay. It was a kind sentiment, but it was wrong. She lost her mother. Not to death, to Facebook. Over a period of three years, her elderly mom went from Facebook illiterate to Facebook junkie. From a great-grandma liking photos of her great-grandkids to a full-blown QAnon conspiracy theorist. Posting wild articles, Sherry watched her mom transform from a godly woman who quoted the Sermon on the Mount and told her to respond to bullies by killing uh, them with kindness to an anxiety-filled propagandist, warning Sherry the end was coming. Sherry tried to intervene, but failed multiple times. Now she was crying in my office, I lost my mom, To Facebook. I told her, I know it's hard, but you're not alone. Your mom isn't the first person I've seen transformed by social media. There are are many, even here, in our church. The new pastoral reality. Like every other pastor in America, I'm wrestling with a new challenge. Artificial intelligence using neural networks and sophisticated machine learning algorithms is shepherding my church into the valley of the shadow of death. The algorithm, to misquote Psalm 139, has searched them and known their hearts. It tests them and measures their anxious thoughts. It has woven digital models of them in its silicone web, womb, sorry, so it can sell their everlasting data to the highest bidder, and keep them addicted to the online platform it serves. Pastors need to be aware that every week of the uh, day of the week, their church members are being instructed, and most likely, their mentor is an algorithm. Is it any surprise that the human shepherds are losing to the digital ones? Of course, algorithms aren't the only problem. A recent piece, uh, In MIT showed that foreign troll farms are exploiting the algorithms to target Christians in their efforts to destabilize American democracy. 19 of the top 20 Christian Facebook pages are run by these anonymous, nefarious agencies. If you visit one of these Christian troll pages, it seems innocuous at first. Cheesy posts, cursive Bible verses over Colorado landscapes, but then you see it. A headline saying something verifiably false, a partisan hot take that borders on conspiracy theory. All right, let me stop here and just make a comment. The threats from online algorithms, the threats from uh, information out there, the the pastor, who, whoever's writing this, they're uniquely focused on what would be more right adjacent threats. So it's the QAnon stuff. It's conspiracy theories from the right. It's Russian troll farms. And it's not what the actual big tech companies are pushing. For example, QAnon stuff, you can't post that on Facebook, you can't just post that stuff and it's going to wind up being part of your algorithm. Maybe there was a time, but it's not now. Uh, that stuff is censored pretty heavily on mainstream social media, unless you're like on Gab or uh, I guess, what I mean, there's maybe some other free speech type platforms. You're not going to, to be interacting with this stuff. It's pretty banned and guess the stuff they're pushing at you, what that is. It's leftist propaganda. That's what's going to be bombarding you more than anything else. It doesn't mean that you can't, um, there aren't algorithms that are going to advertise things from the right uh, or people that are um, friends of yours that post things and you like them. So it'll keep putting more of that in your feed. It doesn't mean that can't happen. It just means the people actually controlling these big tech companies who have the levers of power, who can adjust the algorithms, who can ban things from the algorithms. They are on the raging far left. So, at least you would think there should be like typical gospel coalition does to say, hey, there's like threats from the right, threats from the left, right? And Christianity is somewhere transcending or in the middle or whatever. But in this one, it's starting off, the threats are literally just from the right. This is the same thing you would find uh, with left-wingers and their complaints about social media because the technocracy. They don't have a problem with the technocracy as long as Mark Zuckerberg is controlling it. And uh, in fact, I read, uh, is it, see if i can find it mark zuckerberg right here mark zuckerberg says facebook censored the hunter biden laptop story after the fbi asked to them to restrict misinformation uh this is a story from august 25th mark zuckerberg alleged thursday on the joe rogan experience that the fbi warned facebook of a russian propaganda dump just before the hunter biden laptop story broke the exchange uh began when rogan asked how facebook handled the hunter biden story um let's see and this is what zuckerberg said the fbi basically came to us and some folks on our team and said hey just so you know you should be on high alert we thought there was a lot of russian propaganda in the 2016 election um and there's gonna basically about to be a dump so be vigilant zuckerberg said he can't recall whether the fbi specifically mentioned the hunter biden laptop story but said it fit the pattern so it fit a pattern that the fbi told him to look for, and he said it basically the ranking in newsfeeds was a little bit less. Fewer people saw it than would have otherwise, so it definitely would have, uh, Zuckerberg said before. Rogan interjected and asked by what percentage. Zuckerberg said he didn't know, uh, but that it was a meaningful percentage. A lot of people were still able to share it, but we weren't as black and white about it as Twitter, he added. Zuckerberg admitted that when Hunter Biden laptop turned out to be legitimate, he regretted that it was suppressed and thought, he said that the process was pretty reasonable based on what Facebook knew at the time. So here, let me just say, the algorithms that are being talked about right here in this Gospel Coalition article are being controlled by who? By Mark Zuckerberg, by Twitter, by uh, and, and Facebook is, is the one they're going after here. So we literally just read how Mark Zuckerberg literally kept information from. Uh, disseminating widely about Hunter Biden's laptop, which could have actually had a big influence on the election. And the concern here is QAnon. The concern here is Russian troll farms. And that's my point is you can be concerned about that stuff if you want, but it's a drop in the bucket compared to the concern that you should have for these tech overlords working in conjunction with the deep state or the, in, uh, the, um, uh, I don't know what you want to call them, but the the administrative state uh, and what they're doing to influence what you see on social media that's not even mentioned here maybe they'll mention it let's keep going uh let's see according to an internal report from facebook our algorithms exploit the human brain's attraction okay so we we know about this how to shepherd your flock in the social media era pastors should do this uh and the here's the suggestions pray pray so um it it, it's That's obvious. Pastors, uh, let's see, only get one hour a week, but God gets every hour. Trust him, labor and prayer for your people. Preach about social media. Okay, I don't have a problem with that. I mean, use it as an illustration, obviously, in some of your sermons. Uh, Read Chris Martin's excellent book, Terms of Service. Seek to understand how smartphones, global internet access, big tech and machines, uh, okay, uh, set healthy limits. I think that's all wise. Teach on media literacy. Media literacy is the ability to accurately analyze and interpret a piece of media. How can you tell if a news source is biased? Now, I just have to say, for Gospel Coalition to say this, aren't you dipping your toe now into the realm of, I mean, outside uh, the the pastoral realm, and now you're you're in politics, you're in culture, you're in, well, they want to engage culture, so that's probably okay, but um, what if someone on the right wanted to do this? Say, uh, I don't know, um, well, who, maybe that guy, I forget his name, in, um, outside of Memphis, who's you know preaching all the time about politics and wanting to apply the word of God and biblical Christian principles and and he may be out there but there are people who want to do that and they want to do it uh towards the right right they they actually think the bible gives you biblical morality uh, that parallels conservative paleo conservative thought and if they start to go out there and say thus saith the lord in the public arena whoa 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 you right that's usually like hey not so fast you know uh, but you know, teach, your, teach on media literacy. So I'm just saying, uh, what, is, what is that going to look like? I, I don't know, but he doesn't define it. So it's just, you got to do it. Uh, develop a theology of the news. A theology of the news. Um, so now your pastor is going, going to be curating your news, your uh, newspa- what, what's in your newspapers, what kinds of newspapers and websites you read. Uh, interesting. Um, create digital antibodies. If the digital bloodstream is infected, we just can't ignore it. We need to pump antibodies into the system. Okay, what, what's that mean? Because uh, it'll create alternative content. Well, that's what Gospel Coalition's trying to do. Create a short midweek podcast where your congregation can dig deeper. Uh, create short email devotional. Uh, let's see, start a blog. Uh, create a weekly daily podcast of, for devotionals. Create a weekly email newsletter. Create a cultural commentary podcast. This is going to stress pastors out. <laughs> now you got to do all these things or else your people are going to be taken in by Q. Um I have a point, but I'll make it at the end. Uh, model the fruit of the spirit online. Um, so stay away from hatred and discord and jeal- jealousy and all the things Galatians 5 talks about. Be winsome, it says. Uh, how to argue winsomely. There it is. Make the case for the beauty of IRL fellowship. Champion the embodied fellowship of believers as a more rewarding and satisfying experience than highly online life. Uh, let's see. What's IRL? I don't see. IRL here. Um IRL all right, let's click on grammarly what does IRL mean? Am I the last person to know what what does IRL mean in real life okay, I guess I should have known that. make the case for the beauty of in real life fellowship all right I, I agree with a lot of this stuff. It's not like I'm I'm against it, but uh, the thing he, I guess this is what I'd say the threat is exclusively coming from the right in this particular. Uh, article. And, and what I'd say is that the challenge of the online world, it is a challenge, but the, the challenge of it is no different. The, the things that are common to man uh, have been common for quite some time. Uh, we've had problems with addictions. I mean, pastors who deal with drug addiction, sex addiction, um, you know, and, and let's just call it biblically what it is, sin, right? Pastors who deal with sin, pastors who deal with um, just even media addiction like television. I mean, when radio came out, when television came out, when these kinds of things were out there, I mean, it it also captivated people. Now, there's more of an accessibility you have with your phone. But I mean, you also have accessibility with the TV and the remote there. And uh, I think our intention spans are getting shorter. So people aren't willing to watch long shows or movies as much. But these, my point is that these challenges aren't new. These, the actual principles to be employed aren't new. And so to then go out of your way to form all these podcasts and articles and curate everyone's news and see it as this major threat, I think you just keep preaching what you've always preached. And then you use this as an illustration of, Hey, this is also another way that you can become addicted to something. And Paul said, you wouldn't be mastered by anything. Don't be mastered by your social media. Don't be addicted to it. If you can't live without it, then it looks like it's an idol and don't, and, and and you know manage this, control this. We'll help you. We'll you know keep you accountable. But it's the same thing you would do if someone was addicted to other forms of entertainment. So um, th- they're particularly concerned about this, and I think this is a, what I've seen before from Gospel Coalition, Christianity to Today, uh, just big even in general. I've seen this kind of thing. You see this with the conspiracy stuff. You see this with uh, uh you know Joe Carter with. Um, uh, Who's a guy at the Billy Graham Center, at uh, or was at the Billy? I think he still is. Uh, oh, what's his name? Anyway, I'm gonna I'm gonna find it. He used to have that big beard, that that kind of like Fu Manchu uh, type beard that was starting there. It's on the tip of my tongue, and I should know it. I don't know why I'm forgetting so many things in this particular podcast. Uh, I'm gonna look it up. Anyway, uh, this narrative though that's out there that. The outside of the levers of power, the um, ability to police and manage are these nefarious algorithms and um, cable news shows and, and all kinds of influences that people are getting that aren't their pastor, that aren't the Gospel Coalition website, that aren't mainstream media, and therefore it's, it's like red alert when that happens. Ed Stetzer, that's Ed Stetzer, would talk about this. We're being discipled by, by Tucker Carlson, and, and that's so wrong and so bad. And so I would just say that I think their sense of proportion, their the threats that they're concerned about aren't necessarily, not that some of them aren't threats, but it's not the threats they should be concerned about. And their sense of proportion about it is like level 10 when it's like, yeah, but over here, you have all these other threats. Even on this particular story, the, the threat coming from uh, the left when it comes to social media is so much greater and yet it's not even mentioned. And so uh, anyway, that's, that's what I want to say about that. Um, and uh, it goes without saying, and I don't want to spend much time on this. There's been so many things said about it, but uh, it, it, it should go without saying. But there's there's an article here from, I'll just pull it up from Religion News Service. We're not going to read the article just for the sake of time, but the title is, On Social Media, the Bible Verses Are Flying a Debate Over Student Loan Forgiveness. And there's a, tw- a tw- tweet here from John... Pavlovitz that says conservative Christians are fully enraged at suit loan forgiveness, missing the irony that their entire professed religion is based on the idea of a canceled debt way to lose the plot kids. And I'm going to compliment gospel coalition in a moment. I said I would, but um, this would, uh, I'm not going to go into this article. Uh, This is the guy I think who went after Vody Bauckham for his kids. Yeah. Mark Wingfield. We're not going to read this. Um, I just happened to see this is where, where I found the tweet. So, the narrative is, from some on the left, that, look, this the Bible Bible is about forgiveness, and so we should be about student loan forgiveness. Well, there was a payment made by Jesus, okay? So Jesus actually paid the, the price of our sins. He didn't redistribute the price of people's sins to everyone else who wasn't guilty of those sins. He paid them himself. He became uh accursed for us though we were accursed and that's the beauty of the gospel the student loan forgiveness thing is different in that they're punishing people who don't have student loans who didn't go to college uh possibly or did go and were responsible like myself i never took out a loan once and i have two masters i have a bachelor's degree i was able to do it and now you know i'm going to be paying for people who were irresponsible that's the whole point Um uh, I, you know, if I had voluntarily chosen to do that and to take on these debts, that's one thing. That's what Jesus did, but I'm not voluntarily choosing to do this. I am being taken from. I'm, people are, they're taking from me and, frankly, my descendants after me, and taking their money, taking their ability to purchase, and then they're giving it to people who are irresponsible. So they're subsidizing irresponsibility, and it's going to have a horrible effect. And because once you know your loans are forgiven, you can charge any price for college. It's going to, the tuition's already skyrocketing. It'll keep going up. Once the government gets involved in these things, same thing happened in medical care. And uh, people are just going to be careless. They think that they they are accustomed to thinking they should be bailed out. And Trump didn't help with this, by the way, because those checks that everyone got during the COVID situation, I think made people think, oh, I don't have to actually work. I don't, and we're suffering the consequences of that right now in our economy. Uh, Let's, Let's talk about this Um, last but not least. This is an article from Gospel Coalition. I want to end on this note, and then we're talking about John Jasper a little. Should the government forgive student loans? By Mark Kelly. This is from 2021. I just want to give you the last paragraph. Uh, Two paragraphs. As in all things, as you plan your education, set your heart to honor God. Uh, It says, uh, seen in this light, it's a great honor to pay for the education that equips us for the Lord, uh, Lord's work. And before we were born, we must also be diligent, though, avoiding unnecessary debt, to not let that honor become a burden and hindrance to our work. Uh, that wasn't exactly what I was looking for. There was another place in here. I think maybe, maybe it was towards the beginning. Um, it talks about the crushing debt that the United States has right now. And it says, as Christians, we see the biblical instructions to in, for individuals to pay out debt, for individuals, uh, we want to be careful with that because we know that the borrower is a slave to the lender. And it says even national debt should be approached with a caution and a responsible plan for repayment. Uh, and then it talks about fairness in paying debts. Long story short, uh, the, it says the fairest and most efficient system is still one in which the primary burden for financing college falls on students and their families. It, the Gospel Coalition, now they might reverse this, but to their credit, at one time they did come out against... It might not be hard-hitting, but I'd say it's, it's direct enough against government-funded loan forgiveness, student loan forgiveness. So I just want to give credit where credit's due, um, that that is a, a good take from the Gospel Coalition on that particular issue. Now, let's talk about uh, John Jasper. Um, you can see here, actually, I'll pull it up, my Goodreads profile. Or can you? Maybe I got rid of it. Um, I'll put, actually, the link in the info section for those who are on Goodreads. Uh, And you're wondering, hey, how can I see what John's reading? I do try at least to post everything that I'm reading on my Goodreads. And so uh, here here it is. This is what it looks like. And uh, you can see my books right here. And these are the books that I finished recently. So I I just finished the book That Made Your World, How the Bible Created the Soul of Western Civilization. Uh, Some good things in that book, by the way. But I, it's a lot of the book was like how the Christian—it's the Bible that actually created the welfare state, that uh, ended slavery, that created democracy, and it's a lot of things that I think secular leftists will be like, "Oh, that's the Bible." Well, I guess I should become a Christian. And I just—I thought it was a little incomplete, so I, I'm not—I wasn't too uh, big on it. But it did have some good things. I thought the best section was a very small section where the author, who's from India, talks about the Bible's impact on India. That was interesting. But anyway, um, some other, I read, I read a Faulkner novel, the first Faulkner novel I've read, The Sound and the Fury. And I don't know if I'll be reading a lot of Faulkner. <laughs> I, I, I made this video, uh, for the Abbeville Institute on William Faulkner and they wanted this done. I, I, okay. You know, and I, my brother's a literature major and I I've heard, you know, good things about Faulkner. And so I decided, well, you know, Sound and the Fury, that's kind of his big one. Right. So I read it and I'm like, man, this is dark. So and, and very complicated uh but yeah i mean there's i read the lord of the rings you can see these are all the recent things i've read uh and and that and that was good i really enjoyed actually lord of the rings uh much more than i enjoyed faulkner <laughs> if, even though there's probably some some literature person's going to come out and tell me faulkner is so far superior possibly but lord of the rings uh man uh, i just thought it, it's it's riveting it's it's just it, it keeps your attention for the most part it's uh, in, it's interesting. And it's a fantasy, and I don't typically read fantasies. But the one I read recently, um, John Jasper, The Unmatched Black Philosopher and Preacher, I have up here. I gave it four stars. Uh, I almost gave it five, but I gave it four stars. It is, uh, I would say, a, a really good book. I want to read for you a section from the book uh, to start off with. This is John Jasper uh, lived during the times before and after the Civil War. He was born into slavery, but he was educated in slavery as well. And One of the things I liked about this book, which is why I recommend you get it, is because this book is, today it would probably, I haven't seen anyone do this, but it's very possible that it might meet with, uh, it might get the disdain of the academics who would cause it lost cause mythology or something like that. Because it's written by a journalist from Richmond who actually didn't believe his eyes were lying to him. That's really the bottom line and live through some of the things he talks about. And, and he says things like, yes, there was law, there was a law in Virginia that you weren't supposed to be educating your slaves. And the, the reason for that, I've said this before in the podcast, historically was there was a fear of slave insurrections because you had places like Haiti where there were these insurrections that happened. There were attempts and violent attempts, uh, not, not as many, but there were enough. that um, The idea was that if slaves were able to read, they would read, abolitionist literature and it's not just abolitionist literature like you're thinking of where it's like oh well you know slavery's wrong it's more like throw off the shackles that you have overturn your master don't do work for them kill them if necessary like that's the kind of stuff that they were afraid that'll get into the slaves hands and they're they they may end up doing that their John Brown's attempt is obviously the famous attempt uh Nat Turner's rebellion is another famous one in Virginia's history and and so there was this this rule in Virginia that you weren't supposed to teach slaves to read because, you know, during the postal crisis, they had thousands. Uh, I mean, thousands and thousands. I, I've even read somewhere, I think, that it was more than that. It was like millions. But there was a lot of literature uh, flooding the South uh, that was encouraging all kinds of things, including insurrections. And they were just afraid. I don't want, I don't want the people coming down that are agitating. Uh, I want the slaves to be able to read their stuff. And that was a big part of it. Well, Uh, I think that was wrong. I think all of us would probably today say, how can you, you can't read the scripture, right? How are you going to know God? And well, the point, the the, the fact is during this time in Virginia's history, before the Civil War, um, this book talks about how actually most churches, it was very common that churches were very integrated. Actually, you did have, uh, now that doesn't mean that there wasn't a social kind of stratification, but there was a lot of attention paid to, christianizing slaves and and most of it wasn't it wasn't it was like 10 or 15 percent i remember another source i was reading on this that was focused on obedience to masters and stuff if that i mean it was it was primarily focused on knowing christ and there was a great concern this was a missionary effort all these people came from africa their descendants they're having kids here now and we get to minister to them. And in this book, this book, John Jasper, The Unmatched Philosopher and Black Preacher talks about all these things. You're not supposed to talk about that now because if you have any providential view of any of that, even if you say the whole thing was wrong, it should have never happened. But look at, you know, at the evil that God, the good that came from the evil uh, because of God's hand. You, that's, you can't have that opinion now. Uh, that uh, So anyway, um, you have stuff like that in there. You have, um, you know, he talks about, how that was ignored, that rule, you know, so often. It was like, yeah, we have this rule that you're not supposed to educate slaves, but yeah, it's it's ignored quite a bit. Stonewall Jackson being, of course, one of the most famous uh, examples of this. He taught a black Sunday school. Many of them became preachers and, you know, totally uh, disregarding the law. And John Jasper had uh, somewhat of an education. Now he was, he, he would be considered, I think, uneducated by today's standards. He could read though. Uh, He was able to actually speak in a a more sophisticated vernacular, if you will. Uh, He loved white people. He loved his master, right? These are things you're not supposed to read about these things. And that's not the primary reason I say to get this book, but that is one reason, because it's going to give you a window into a world that is often mischaracterized today. It's oversimplified. It's become a cartoon. And reality is just more complicated than that. John Jasper is one of the figures you don't hear about much. And I don't think BLM would ever care about John Jasper. I don't think Black History Month is ever going to focus on John Jasper. I don't think you're... But yet, John Jasper was a celebrity of the highest order in Virginia. I mean, he was popular. He was probably the most popular preacher in Richmond at uh, towards the end of his life. I mean, he was he was a rock star, in, to use t- today's vernacular. Let me read for you a section from this. Um here's a whole paragraph this is the reporter talking he said, in the company with a friend. I went very often Sunday afternoons to hear Jasper. And the fact was brooded about quite extensively and somewhat to the chagrin of some of my church members, two of them, a professor in Richmond college. So educated and a lawyer well-known in the city took me to task about it. So he went, he's saying, I'm going to see John Jasper preach and I'm being taken to task for it. They told me in somewhat decided tones that my action was advertising a man to his injury and other things of a similar sort. So if you're, they're, they're saying like, you know, that you're advertising him to his injury, meaning you're promoting him when he's not capable of bearing the weight you're putting on him. He's, he's not capable of preaching in the way you think. He's not educated. And, and one of his, we're going to find out in a minute. One of his most famous sermons was about how the sun doth move. He, he was, yes, he was, speaking of gospel coalition conspiracy theories, he believed according to the Bible that actually the sun rotated, uh, around the earth and not the other way. And he uh, preached this sermon. And so, anyway, um, we'll talk about that in a moment. But a professor in Richmond College and a lawyer uh, took me to task. He said they told me in somewhat decided tones that my action was advertising man to his injury and other things of a similar sort. I cared but little for their criticism, but told them that if they would go to hear him when he was at his best and if afterwards they felt about him as they then felt, I would consider their complaints. They went the next Sunday. Okay, so these skeptical, educated white people in Richmond go to see John Jasper. The house was overflowing and Jasper walked the mountaintops that day. His theme was the raising of Lazarus and the steps majestic he took us along until he began to describe the act of raising Lazarus from the dead. It happened that the good professor was accompanied by his son, a sprightly lad of about 10 who was sitting between his father and myself. Suddenly the boy evidently agitated, turned to me and begged that we go home at once. I sought to soothe him, but in vain, for as he proceeded, the boy urgently renewed his request to go home. His father observed his disquietude, and putting an arm around him, restored him to calmness. After the service ended and we had reached the street, I said to him, look here, boy, what puts you in such a fidget to quit the church before the end of the service? Oh, doctor, I thought he had a dead man under the pulpit and was going to take him out, he said. My lawyer brother heard the sermon and with profound feeling, said, Hear that and let me say to you that in a lifetime I have heard nothing like it. And you ought to hear that man whenever you can. Okay, this is one sample of what people thought of John Jasper. One sample. This guy held, I mean, it was popular for the white preachers of the town. The white preachers to go on Sunday afternoon and listen to his sermons visitors who came from other places to go visit him and yet he is uniquely a son of virginia he there there was a section in there where it talked about so so I mean, i'm just saying he could have had more fame but he he was a local legend he went to philadelphia i think it was and he tried to preach up there and half the congregation left in the middle of it there was there was jeering there was uh he felt out of place he he wasn't he he didn't particularly take to yankees <laughs> he just he was comfortable in Virginia, and that's those are the people that loved him. And it's it's an interesting story uh, because it shows you how skilled this guy was. And I think a lot of times, in uh, especially the way that Black history is taught today in America, they are passive. They're so passive. Uh, they are uh, the victims of all these other forces, and yet. The reality is there are some black people that accomplish some great things. John Jasper is one of them. John Jasper was a phenomenal preacher. And yes, he had some quirky ideas. He had an idea about the sun, obviously, that that was popular, and it was popular because it was so wrong. But he was very sincere in his belief, and uh, science was not his forte. Uh, Maybe even interpretation of scripture wasn't his forte in some ways, but delivery was. And he was very good at what he did. He was a very good deliverer to the point that people came from everywhere. So do am I, because I think John Jasper is a great guy, endorsing his view, his antiquated view about uh, geocentricity? No, obviously not. <laughs> but he's a man of his time, and uh, he had limitations. And uh, I don't hold it against him that he was wrong on some things. I'm probably wrong on some things myself. He had a, a, an amazing ability, though, and his his story and his testimony are, I think, are credits uh, to um, to African American or Black history. I think they need people like John Jasper need to be uncovered more. They need to be talked about more. Uh, there's so much in this book, just giving you a window into the just the uh, race relations and Reconstruction and just the, the the. It's not about the situation of the time. It's about John Jasper. But there's so much in it. Like I'll give you a few examples. Uh, he gets saved. He works um, at a, a factory of some kind anyway, but he gets saved. And his boss tells him, uh, th- and this is when he's, uh, I think he's in his late or mid to late 20s. He, I think he's freed at that point. He's, and his boss basically tells him, basically, take the day off work and go tell everyone, you know, that you got saved. <laughs> Can you imagine any boss today saying that? I mean, he's weeping. He's telling everyone he's just, and, I mean, talk about a more Christian society. Uh, and this is just, this is just, you know, said in, in the book. Uh, it's not a unique thing to them. The, the fact that a lot of, you know, who took a prominent stand against him with his sermons on geocentricity? It was the black preachers. It was the other local black preachers. They had a whole meeting, like, we got to stop this John Jasper guy. I mean, he is, he's, you know, getting too uh, big for his, you know, he's, he's so popular. He's going to embarrass all of us. I mean, It's interesting to see that dynamic, too, because it talks about in here that some uh, after the war that, you know, some uh, black people had a a resentment that they cultivated and was nurtured for them to some extent. Uh, And John Jasper, though, and there was people like him that didn't have that at all. And John Jasper actually, it says on like two or three times how much he actually liked white people, how he he didn't carry this bitterness uh, about him. He was friends with them. He cared about their souls. Uh, he preached to them. I mean, it was an integrated church. He, he had there was white and black people both there listening to him. And this is a black preacher. You know, isn't, that's what the Gospel Coalition wants, right? This is what they want the, every tribe, tongue, nation, right, sitting out the same church. Well, here's an example of it. Here's a place that it happened. And guess what? It was uh, right after slavery. It was during Reconstruction time. Yeah, it, it did happen. And uh, so, so it's a unique story that needs to be told, I think um, it talks about at one point it says that and I know I've read this other places that it was it was exceptionally rare for slave families to be divided, but it did happen. Um, so it was in, in a lot of the northern uh, or I shouldn't say northern, but a lot of the kind of radical abolitionist literature it was often portrayed that that was the condition of slavery that was just constantly this was happening it wasn't a constant thing at all but it did happen and guess who was one of the people that had a uh, family division John Jasper was um, and it was his actually he, he was basically I don't even I don't know the details I don't know that the reporter knows the details and, and I think he's picking he, he's trying to figure it out after the fact but his first wife uh, he got married and then there was a separation during I guess it was during slavery that took place, and I, I'm assuming this was before Jasper was a Christian. And um, and Jasper, even he, even having been wronged, he didn't harbor bitterness, and that it's an amazing thing. That's actually character I think we want in our kids. Um, and and so I, I would just suggest looking into this guy, a passionate man. Uh, very, it has excerpts from his sermons in here. One of the sermons is there in, in its completion. And a lot of it's been lost, but uh, this is someone that should be written about. This is someone who was, like I said, very popular, a Virginia legend, a Richmond legend. And I had never heard about him until very recently, and I don't think that's right. I think uh, people like him, if we're going to talk about black history, which is being talked about a lot, I think we should talk about people like John Jasper, too, and not just leave them out because they weren't... uh, They don't fit the mold for who ends up getting platformed during Black History Month, which tends to be people who were revolutionary uh, in some way. And that wasn't John Basker. He was just a really good, faithful preacher. So anyway, uh, that's my recommendation. God bless. Hope that was a helpful podcast. More coming